up because I'm not loud enough. I'm trying to solve a mystery. And I'll be honest right at the top, I don't know if there's any way to solve it. But the stakes are pretty low. No one's future is hanging on finding the answer. But after a nine-year search, I'm too invested to quit. So here it is. I'm looking for a stuffed bear. It's light brown and wears a bow tie, and it has several notes attached to it. Although when I saw it, there was only one. Nearly 30 years ago, it began a journey that would take it across the country, spreading messages of comfort and healing to people who needed it the most. But I don't know where it is today, and for some reason that bothers me. This podcast is about my search for the bear, but it's also about how people can come together in the best way when facing the worst circumstances. In a way, it's not really my story at all, but in order to tell it, I have to start where it began for me. July 17th, 1996. I was 17, enjoying one last lazy summer before leaving for college. And I was pretty lazy. The grocery store where I'd worked my senior year of high school went out of business right before graduation, so I didn't have a summer job. I also didn't have my own car, and the area of Pennsylvania where we lived was rural enough that that meant I couldn't go anywhere. There wasn't much to do in the evenings either, so my sister Jennifer and I would drive down the hill into town and take walks. Our town, Montoursville, is the quintessential Pennsylvania small town. I went to the same high school my mother and grandmother went to. There were 168 people in my graduating class, including several I'd known since preschool. We went to wedding receptions at the local fire hall. We got the first day of hunting season off school. It was a great place to grow up. But at 17, I was looking forward to doing something new. I had outgrown Montoursville or so I thought back then, in a way that only someone six weeks out of high school could. As I walked around town on the evening of July 17th, I couldn't have heard the explosion that occurred hundreds of miles away off the coast of East Mauritius, New York. But that event was about to change my town and me forever. I'm Erica Grotto. This is Survived By. This one time, this one time, I don't want to be alone. Skip Polkrano was watching TV in his New Jersey home when he heard the explosion. Well, middle of the summer here at the Jersey Shore, probably down the beach that day, uh, relaxing at home at night. Um, and again, never forget the time, 8.31 p.m. that night. I'm sitting watching TV and I heard uh, like a blast explosion. Being the summer, the first thing I thought about was uh well maybe it's thunder so i better go out and check my car windows uh went out to check and the sky is totally blue not a cloud in the sky so i said something right away just knew something was up so i said i'm going back to the tv and i said i bet you in like 10 or 15 minutes something's going to come on about something horrible that happened so sure enough i went back to the living room turned on the tv and about 10 minutes later the bulletin came up about that a plane had crashed off long island I first learned about the crash from my mom. She'd seen a news report that a 747 headed from JFK in New York to Charles de Gaulle in Paris had gone down a few minutes after takeoff. There was an effort to rescue survivors, but the hope of finding any quickly waned as the Coast Guard and volunteers pulled bodies and wreckage from the oil-slicked ocean. At some point, they announced that the number of the doomed flight was TWA 800. Before I went to bed, probably around 10 or 10.30, I thought about turning on the news and checking out the story of the crash, but in the end, I decided to go to sleep. 
That decision gave me one last night of childhood. Elsewhere in Montoursville, Amy Kerstetter didn't have the same choice I did. She'd had a long day and was supposed to be up early for work the next morning, but her TV was on and her mind was on one person, Jody Labenslager. Jody and Amy were both in my graduating class. I didn't know either of them all that well, but the two were best friends. Earlier that day, Jody had stopped by to see Amy as she prepared to leave for a long-awaited trip to Paris with the high school French club. It was the last time they would see each other. So I saw her the morning of, and I worked at the Sunoco station on Broad Street. I think it was $4.25 an hour I made, and um, I checked fluids and pumped gas and cleaned windows. But that day on uh, July 17th, they were training me in the self-service booth in the back. And I was in there with my manager and um, Jody showed up and it was, it was slow at that point. <clears throat> so I went out and I was talking to her. I, I think, I think it was nerves. Uh, she was crying a little that she was afraid to go. And I said, oh, you know, cause I knew everything. I had flown in 10th grade and uh, I said, oh, you'll be fine. And uh, uh, turbulence, you know, it's not great, but you'll, you'll be fine um, once, once uh, you get up in the air and stuff. And uh, I told her to sit with, sit with rants if she could, because they traveled a lot. So I said, sit with him. And um, we just chit-chatted and, and uh, I gave her a hug. And, but yeah, she was, she was really nervous and crying. And I, I think it did bother me. Like I should have known the future or something. Uh, you know, as an 18 year old kid, I was supposed to know that I was to say, no, don't go. I have a bad feeling about this. Was it a bad feeling? I, I don't know. It was, it, my friend was nervous and she was crying. And, and that's just how I was feeling about that. Late that night, a worried friend called Amy's house. At first, Amy wasn't too concerned because although she didn't know Jody's flight number, she did know the flight was supposed to have departed earlier in the evening. What Amy and her friend couldn't have known was that the flight had been delayed due to a mix-up on the ground having to do with what was believed to be a missing passenger. When the ground crew finally figured out the passenger had been on board the whole time, more than an hour had gone by, so the plane didn't take off until after 8 o'clock. It took a call to Jody's house to piece things together. I called Jody's parents' house, and they have uh, a small farm, and they they kept farmer's hours. They... Um, country hours, they got up very early and they went to bed early. Uh, so I called and it kept ringing and ringing and ringing. Um, and they had, they had the one phone in the house, in the kitchen. And Jody's mom finally answered the phone and, and you could tell that I woke them up. It was, you know, say it was, it was after 11 PM and I didn't want to alarm her, but I did, I did ask 
I, I don't know, but like, like a child, would I just, you know, ask right away, what, what, what was the flight number? And her mom said 800. Um, and I know, I guess that was just that, no, this couldn't be, this couldn't be, this couldn't be. And then when she said that, uh, I, I, that was it. And I, I threw my phone and it wasn't a cordless phone. It was this cheap little white phone. I threw my phone. The whole thing went um, across the room and my mom picked up the phone and my mom was the one who talked to Jody's mom and just, she just said, you need to turn on the news. You need to turn on the news. So many people in Montoursville have stories like this. Phones were ringing all over town that night. And before long, the worst fears of families, friends, and teachers were confirmed. 16 French club students from Montoursville High School, along with five chaperones, had been on the plane. 21 people who had stood outside the high school just hours before, smiling for a group photo, were gone. Not to Paris, but forever. People started showing up at my house um, at like midnight. Um, classmates started just showing up. And I, my house was a place where, I mean, I had lots of people sleep over and I had parties, not drinking party just I had lots of people over um so people showed up people maybe I wasn't even that close with they were showing up um and I remember thinking I was going to throw up when uh one of our classmates we had lost um in the spring in a car accident, his siblings who lived around the corner, they showed up, their dad sent them over to see if I was okay. Around 1 a.m., Amy went to the high school where people from around the community were beginning to gather. I looked off in the distance and I saw Jody's parents and her sister walking in to the high school. Um, I didn't, I don't remember talking to them at all. Um, I think, and I, I could be not remembering this correctly. I feel like they took the parents and the siblings. I think they ushered them somewhere else. The families were already on a bus bound for New York before I woke up on the morning of July 18th and learned what had happened. My aunt had seen the news and called my mom who came into my room and told me, I won't tell you what she said to me, but I do remember her exact words. But just a few minutes after that, everyone left. My parents went off to work. My sister took the car we shared to a babysitting job, and I was alone at home, isolated. People were still heading toward the high school, but I couldn't walk there from where I lived, and I was too afraid to call any of my close friends because most of them were in the French club. I searched my memory for any conversation I might have had with someone about the trip and combed back issues of the school paper for a story about who was planning to go. I watched the crash coverage on CNN in disbelief and fielded calls from faraway family members asking for information. When I answered a call from an old neighbor who'd moved away, she quietly, tentatively asked, Jennifer? 
The relief in her voice when I said, no, it's Erica, made it obvious the reason she'd called was to find out if I was alive. She asked what I knew, but it really wasn't much. I got tidbits of information throughout the day, and eventually I did connect with a few friends and find out they were safe. But until I left my house that evening for a vigil in the high school gym, I knew very little about what had happened. The local news showed up, and I believe it was the 18th that uh, CNN was there. And that was surreal, the CNN van in Montoursville. Yeah. Parked, parked on Cherry Street. I mean, that just progressively got worse to the point when, well, when you would show up at the high school, you would be bombarded with reporters. Yeah. Um, did you, did you know a victim? Did you know the victims? Did you know the victims? Especially prior to the uh, release of the names. Did you know any of the, did you know the victims? Did you know the victims? My goodness, like you're 18 in little Montoursville. And it, it, I mean, it felt like you were some kind of celebrity scandal victim, no comment, no comment. And they were hounding us every time we were seeking comfort at the high school. They were out there. I'd been watching the news all day, but I had no idea how many reporters would actually make the trip to Montoursville. But the steps leading into the school were lined with photographers. I didn't want my picture taken. I didn't want my face in the story. But they didn't seem to care about what any of us were feeling as they clicked away, looking at their cameras instead of at us. I wondered what I looked like through their lenses and where my picture might show up. I wasn't inside the gym for more than a minute when Amy came running up to me. She said my name and threw her arms around me. It was strange, honestly. Amy and I weren't friends. We got along fine and we had a little running joke about how we'd somehow ended up with identical white dresses for a senior event before graduation. But we weren't close at all, so of all the people I might have expected to make a beeline for me that night, she was not among them. I asked her about this not long ago, and she doesn't remember it, but agrees that, yeah, it sounds weird. I'm not big on hugs, she told me. I must have needed it so badly. In the moment, I couldn't have known that. I had no idea she'd been up for the better part of 36 hours. I had no idea she'd lost her best friend. And I still had no idea how big this all was. So I just hugged her back. And as she sobbed into my shoulder, I started to get it. Until that moment, this whole thing still sort of felt like something that was happening to other people. And now I knew it was happening to all of us. There was a table set up at one end of the room with photos, and it was there that I finally learned the names of the people who had been on the plane. There was Jody, of course, and Rance Hetler, who'd been a classmate of mine since Bosley's daycare, as well as two others from our graduating class, Dan Bazczewski and Jackie Watson. There were Michelle Bolin and Julia Grimm, two sweet girls I'd known from band and choir, and Wendy Wolfson, who'd been in my creative writing class the year before and remains one of the cleverest and funniest people I've ever met. Her mother, Eleanor Wolfson, was one of the five chaperones on the trip. On and on it went, 21 names, 21 lives lost, from one small Pennsylvania town. 
The table was also lined with flowers and notes. Already, Montoursville had received messages of support from around the world. I remember seeing one that said something like, I don't know you and you don't know me. All I can say is I love you. Those messages continued to pour in all summer, not just to the school, but to some of us personally. A secretary from the admissions office from the college I was about to enter sent a letter expressing condolences and offering support once I got on campus. My family had just gotten AOL that summer, and I must have had my city and state in my profile because I started getting emails from strangers saying they were sorry for my loss. It was surreal but touching, and I appreciated that so many were thinking of our town. For Amy Kerstetter, one of those unexpected messages began with something a lot less thoughtful, a special report in Time magazine. I have a copy of it. It came out on July 29th, and the photo on the front cover is one of the iconic images of the crash taken by photographer John Levy. It's a piece of wreckage floating in a calm sea. The photo by J. Conrad Williams on page 26 is less gentle, fire burning on the ocean. On page 31 is Amy's name. In Time Magazine, the reporter who had been on one of the boats, um, they were picking up things that were in the water and there was a, uh, a girl's backpack and I, it had to have been Jody's um, because it had a shopping list and it was um, things that we had asked her to bring back and I had asked for a pink beret. As far as I know, they, her family never received the backpack. They, I don't know whatever happened to it then, um, but it, it existed. So I sent a letter. I, I wrote a letter because I want to know where the backpack was. But then sometimes um, you see that there are good people. So I received two packages. Um, it, just, it was just sent to Miss Amy Kerstetter in Montoursville. Please find her. <laughs> and uh, they were delivered. One of the packages was um, a pink beret from Paris um, that uh, a woman was traveling there and she, she saw my letter. Uh, so she wanted me to have the pink beret that I had asked for. The other was a green, a Kelly green beret from a fourth grade French class, it, uh, actually in France. Uh, and they all signed um, a card for me, at, but they sent that over. In town, things were different too. People hugged you at the grocery store. We held impromptu memorial services on the front lawn of the school. Summer parties ended with tears and hugs and promises to call to say you got home safely. And we just kind of treated each other a little better. People like to talk about how the country came together after 9-11, but for me, the one and only time I felt that sense of unity was after the crash of Flight 800. All over town, people were wearing ribbons in our school colors of blue and gold and buttons with a drawing of a dove or a teddy bear and the phrase forever in our hearts. And this town that I'd been so excited to leave was suddenly a haven, the one place where people understood. There's one more person whose story I want to share. How they found out about the crash, when they learned about our town, how they felt about it. 
There's just one problem. I don't know who it is. I can only tell you about the bear. It was one of many gifts sent to Montoursville High School that year. I don't remember when I first saw it, and I'm not sure what made me walk over to look at it. It had two unique characteristics. One was the green and white checked bow tie, which had long ends hanging down, Colonel Sanders style. The other thing was the note attached to the bear. According to the note, the bear had been sent to the people of Oklahoma City after the bombing of the federal building there in 1995. He was meant to comfort and heal, it said. He has done well here. I now send him to you to continue his job. I remembered the bombing, of course. On April 19, 1995, a truck bomb had exploded outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 and injuring hundreds of others. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols had been arrested fairly quickly, but wouldn't be tried and convicted until 1997. It had been a huge news story in 1995, but to me, that's all it was, a news story. But seeing that bear was yet another reminder that what had happened to our town was bigger than I could have imagined. I have a lot more to tell you about the bear, but you need to hear some other things first. So now we go back to Skip Polcrano. He's the one you heard from at the beginning, the guy who thought the explosion was a thunderstorm. He's a coach with Shore Cheer International, and if that sounds like a cheerleading program, well, it is. But in the hour I spent talking with him in the summer of 2022, he didn't have a lot to say about cheerleading. Our cheerleading program is uh, a cheerleading program second and a community service program first. And their community service has no limits. They're all over the country. Well, I can tell you about the 80 uh, foreign embassies they've visited promoting world peace. Uh, they've performed uh, six times uh, for the People's Republic of China at their embassy. Um, they've performed at the Russian embassy. Uh, and this goes on and on and on. They've done massive um, community service for veterans. Uh, they've held a number of events at Arlington National Cemetery. They visited with veterans. Uh, they, they, they meet to them. They talk to them. They've been invited back, which is really neat because most of these people are dead now. This um, went on for a while. I couldn't believe all the things these girls have done. According to Skip, over the years, they've traveled more than half a million miles doing community service projects across the country. When 9-11 happened, the girls got together and they said, we want to do something, obviously. What do you want to do? So they had a meeting and they just, I said, go in a room by yourself. It's up to you guys. What do you want to do? They came out and said, um, we want to visit all three 9-11 sites in one day on the anniversary. And I go, girls, you know, that's like impossible. That's over a thousand miles from here to do the whole trip. And we have a, a saying that whenever we hear the word impossible, we do it. So the kids did it. They went out, did a thousand miles in a day and did 10 years in a row. Um, I remember that the, the old Minutemen during the Revolutionary War, we have called our girls the Minute Girls. They had bags packed all the time. They were ready to go. Something happened. You know, I didn't even say you want we were, we were out the door. Um, that was just something they wanted to do. It wasn't like, you know, any encouragement for me. I just said, what do you want to do? All, most of all these things were things they wanted to do. It's their, their programs. They planned them. And I just helped them, you know, get the bus and being able to do it and go there and get there and home safely. Skip's Montoursville story isn't a typical one for short year. Maybe the girls felt more connected to our tragedy because two of the French club students, Michelle Bolin and Larissa Uzippus, had been cheerleaders. Maybe it was something else. 
but whatever it was, inspired them to come to Montoursville in the summer of 1996 and every year since. We, we heard about the disaster and um, right away we knew we had to do something. So a couple of days right after the crash, our team was going to a cheering uh, camp down in Stockton College in South Jersey. And there were teams there from all over the world. So we figured, well, let's get some big white megaphones, uh, actually six of them, and have people send messages to the people of Montoursville. And uh, we'll take them out there. We had the event. Uh, our girls did a beautiful presentation. The cheerleaders from Montoursville showed up. Uh, we got together. Uh, a lot of the parents of the victims were there. And it was such an amazing event. We decided that we would do it again next year. And then the next year, and it just became a, a, a tradition in Montoursville ever since then. Now we're doing our, our 27th year. Did you, like, did you call ahead and said, hey, we're, we're going to come and do this? Or did you just, like, hop on a bus and come up? How did that work? Unlike most of the projects we do, we never call. We just go. But um, because this was a 250-mile each-way trip, uh, we had a lot of kids, a lot of small kids. We had, we had to get a bus. Uh, we just wanted to make sure that, you know, that Montresville High School would accept us when we got up there. And they said, sure, come on up. In fact, I think I, I drove up there uh, a couple of days before the trip just to, to verify it with everybody that it was okay to come up. 21 girls made the trip the first year. As they got off the bus, Skip couldn't help but note that that was the same as the number of Montoursville victims on the plane. Some of the girls were really young, too. They ranged in age from third grade through high school. As a mom, I find it hard to imagine sending my kids hundreds of miles to respond to something so horrible. But for these girls, it was a transformative experience. Every so often, our girls have a reunion. And uh, a lot of the girls who still come to that reunion were there that first day. And they've been to a lot of other, other great events that the kids have done. Um, and one of the girls said the reason why she comes to the reunion is because of what she did with this program. She can't talk to her parents about it. She can't talk to her children about it. She can't talk to her friends about it. The only people she can talk to about it are the people that were there with her because they're the only ones she feels that will understand the impact that it had on them. That's interesting because being um, a recent graduate when the crash happened, that's how mm -hmm. I feel about the classmates that I have, you know, about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the people um, from my high school, there's, you know, I, I talk about the crash a lot, but there's, there's nobody who really gets it. Like the people no, who were my age at the time and went to, to school with me and, you know, they all remember it's very, you know, yeah, um, we have a saying in a program, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, but the real experience is worth a thousand pictures. So, you know, that's, that's the ultimate is being there and, you know, and feeling it and carrying that feeling around. And like you said, and I said, it's just very hard to relay that to people who don't understand. Yeah. What was that like for you as the adult, knowing that these kids might have a, a big emotional response? I mean, I, I have a third grader. I can't imagine what it would be like to do something like this with her and talk to her about it and explain what was going to happen. And, you know, just the reality of the situation. Um, you know, did you talk to the, the girls about it? Did you talk well, actually, to the parents uh, about it? I talk, yeah. I talked to one of the mothers of the third grader and she said, I, I want to thank you because uh, 
you taught my daughter what death was all about. She got back and she goes, mommy, people actually died. And that was the first experience she's had with, with death. So, you know, the younger ones probably felt that way uh, right up to the older ones who, who, again, probably felt the same way. I mean, it's, uh, especially the cheerleaders. You know, there, there were cheerleaders that died, uh, school age kids that died, you know, so they can really relate to what happened. And something else that happened that very first trip, which was there, there was sort of, a, again, a, a sort of molding of the two groups. Uh, right after we did our presentation in the uh, cafeteria, the um, principal talked to the cheering coach and she wanted her to take us around the building uh, for like a little tour. And the first thing she said, she says, you're not going to believe this, but about you know two days before you guys came here, there was over 90,000 telegrams uh, stuck to all the walls around the building. And the problem they were having, uh, they had just built a new gym and they couldn't get the cheerleaders or anybody to go in there and practice because they held the viewings of where all the bodies were because that was the only place that was big enough to, to hold it for the ceremony. I remember. So, um, the cheering coach said, would you do me a favor? Would, would you go inside our gym and maybe do some cheers and some stunts and maybe our girls will, will, will see you and they'll, they'll come in and join you. Well, sure enough, that happens. Our girls went in there. They started doing tumbling stunts and everything. And then the Montreux real girls slowly, like one at a time, worked their way in there and they started working together and really changed the uh, the atmosphere there. They were really having a good time in a place that was so tragic just a few days ago. Ten days after the crash, a pipe bomb exploded in Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta, killing two and wounding more than 100. There was some speculation for a while about whether the plane crash and the Atlanta attack could be connected, but our town, our kids were forgotten pretty quickly after that. The 21 Montoursville victims were found and identified before the end of the summer. We were lucky in that regard, although it still feels horribly unfair that identification of bodies was the best we could hope for. The class of 1996 settled into life at college or jobs. Younger students returned to the high school. The black shroud that had been draped over the Welcome to Montoursville sign was unceremoniously removed. It was over, except that it wasn't. It's still not. Most of the students are buried in the Montoursville Cemetery on a hill my mom used to sled down as a kid. I haven't been there in years, but Skip Polcrano has. He visits Montoursville around the anniversary every year and does a little ceremony at the angel statue in the memorial garden outside the school and the community shows up. In 2022, he had the largest turnout he'd ever had, about 60 people. That's why it's impossible to tell the story of Montoursville and TWA 800 without him. We started doing this year after year after year, and we sort of uh, had a routine put together. Um, we would get there, uh, the first thing we would do would um, was visit the Angel Memorial right next to the high school. And they had, after the first year, it had just gone up and um, they had planted 21 trees around the angel with hopes that eventually all the trees would grow and the branches would join together. Um, so we went there first, you know, the girls laid flowers at, at the angel. Then they would go through town, pass out hundreds of flowers throughout town. Uh, all the businesses, all the homes that would go around and, and then they'd end the day going up to the cemetery on top of the, the hill uh, in Montoursville. And they would, you know, um, hold a little ceremony there, put flowers on, on the graves. And um, every year we did the same thing. And not until, I want to say around 2014 or 2015, 
the girls were at the Angel Memorial. And uh, the, the principal would always come out and talk to the new girls and explain to them what happened. And as we're leaving, the principal goes, by the way, you see that man sitting on that bench all the way in the back? Uh, his daughter was killed in the crash. So one of my girls heard that and they said, oh, could we go over and give him a flower? And I said, yeah, well, sure. So they went over, gave him a flower, started talk to, talking to him. And he came back and he goes, I don't believe this. He goes, for the last like 10 or 15 years, we always wondered who came and put the flowers on our kids' graves. We never knew. So oh. they found out that day that it was our, our kids doing that. So ever since then, you know, he would meet us there every year and we, we you know, do things together and uh, visit the, the graveyard together. And um, we've got really gotten together with a lot of the parents. And it's really nice, you know, to see how much they appreciate. That's one of the reasons why we come back every year, because they appreciate it so much. As for me, the next few decades passed in a pretty typical way. I went to college, graduated, got married, started family, all very usual milestones, except that as I reached each one, I thought about how my classmates never would. I became a journalist, something I never would have imagined after the experience my town had in 1996, but life is strange sometimes. Facebook led me back to Amy Kerstetter, who still gives me grief about that white dress. She's a wife and a mom and a high school English teacher now. And the bear? Well... For years, I wondered about him. Whenever I would see something horrible on the news, I would wonder where he was, hoping he wasn't just sitting in a closet in Montoursville High School collecting dust. So in 2013, I started asking around, and I found out a few things. He traveled to three places after he left us, all sites of mass shootings. But the last reported sighting I have of him is from more than 20 years ago. I was also really curious about where he'd come from, the note said he was sent to the people of Oklahoma City. That wording seemed strange until I learned more, and the story I eventually heard about where this bear came from was nothing short of amazing. That's all to come. I left Montoursville for good in 2002, but I still go back to visit family. Like any small town, it somehow changed a lot and stayed exactly the same. And nowhere is that more apparent than the high school. Most of it was torn down a few years ago, with a new building put up on the land. Only a small portion of the old building remains, the one containing the gym.